Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Continuous Plays Batman Franchise Retrospective, featuring Anna McCoy. Perhaps you should read the instructions first. Jay Newcastle. I'm going to tell them the whole thing was your idea. And Brian Thomas. How about a magic trick? We'll go through the plots, talk about the themes, and give our recommendations for your viewing. Continuous Play and ContinuousPlayPodcast.com is not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. Any discussion of the plots, characters, or music from the films is done so for entertainment purposes only, and all rights are reserved. Welcome to Continuous Play's Batman Franchise Retrospective. I'm Jay. I'm Anna. And I'm Brian. And we are glad to be back here to discuss our final chapter of the Batman franchise, The Dark Knight, released in 2008, starring Christian Bale, Aaron Eckhart, Gary Oldman, Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Heath Ledger as the Joker. Directed, of course, by Christopher Nolan. Made for $185 million. Gang, this one grossed over $1 billion worldwide in its theatrical run. And I'll tell you both, this is one of the very few films I've gone to see in a theater more than once. What was your reaction to it when you first saw it, Anna? I thought it was very good, and just like you, I went and saw it. I went and saw it twice in the theater, and it has to be a really good movie for me to go see twice. Brian, I never got to see it in the theater because at the time my son was very young, and there's just no chance I was going to get out to a theater. But I had to wait even a while after it came out on DVD to see it, and was given a lot of people telling me that this was the greatest movie. This you have to see this movie. So finally, when I got the DVD and put it in, I watched it. I loved it. I I couldn't believe it lived up to the hype that was given it, especially with all the people telling me I had to see it. So that was awesome. Yeah, this one definitely lives up to the hype. And we should stay from the start. Not only is this probably the, the biggest grossing film we'll, we'll ever review on, on Now Playing unless we get around to doing like Titanic and Avatar and stuff like that. It, it's the most dense plot we'll ever try to talk about here. And we're going to go into as much detail and earnest as we can here. But before we get really into this, Brian, give us a basic plot summary for The Dark Knight, please. Batman helps the cops bring in their chief money launderer, forcing the criminals to enlist the help of the Joker, who is not interested in crime as much as he is chaos. The Joker kills the police chief, a judge, and attempts to kill the mayor, all to draw the Batman out into the open. D.A. Harvey Dent poses as the Batman and helps arrest the Joker. However, the Joker's henchmen turn the tables on Batman and Dent, kidnapping him and Rachel, and setting off bombs which kill Rachel and disfigure Dent, driving him insane for revenge. Dent, now known as Two-Face, goes on a killing spree to find Batman. Batman faces off with the Joker and ultimately hands him over to the authorities. In a showdown with Two-Face, Batman and Gordon are able to turn the tables on him as he falls to his death. 
realizing that exposing Dent as Two-Face will ruin his credibility and set the police efforts back to maintain control, Batman decides to assume responsibility for Two-Face's crimes and therefore transforms from the city hero to its dark knight. That's, and that is a good plot summary, and we realize there's a lot more going on in this one. I mean, I, if this movie is is so dense. I said that a minute ago, and I'll say it again. There's so much going on in this. I mean, it's like taking a college lecture course or something. you got to pay attention from day one, or you're going to miss something. Yeah, I agree. I was trying to watch it while doing too much stuff and having too much distractions earlier today just to kind of refresh my memory, and... I just wasn't getting it, and I definitely realized that this is one you have to sit and focus on, or you're not going to get the movie. Yeah, this is a very, very dense movie, and I, I like to say that it's kind of like uh, there it's three movies in one. It's two and a half hours long, and there are about three points in this movie where the movie could have ended, and you would have been satisfied, and it just kept going. But this is not a bad thing in this one's case, because it's so good and entertaining that you don't mind that it continues going on. Yeah, you, you really don't. You know, the last one was a little long, too, and I said when we were reviewing Batman Begins, I never was bored in it. And any time, I was never bored in that movie. And, and this one, the same way. It's so dense, and it is a lot to absorb, uh, especially when you're watching it for, for something like a podcast and stuff. It's a lot to absorb, but it, it keeps your attention. It keeps you moving. And, and from the start, it's... Uh, Ah, there's so much going on. Let, let's get into the plot here, and we'll talk about characters and, and all that other stuff as we like to do here on Continuous Play. I, we start off realizing Batman's in the middle of a fight here, and his continuing war on crime, as it is, has spawned copycats. And in a, an attempt to capture the Scarecrow, who I guess is selling some more wacky weed or whatever he's got going on to, to drive people crazy to some some bad dudes, Batman shows up to cut it off, but he's met by a lot of his uh, copycats. I mean, it's, it's an interesting take that, you know, Batman went from being this fear-inspiring creature to that he's starting to become a hero that is getting the Gotham uh, faithful moving and doing something. Well, I think there's a good line where or Bruce Wayne says to Alfred after this scene, he goes, well, this isn't exactly what I meant when I set out to inspire people. So I think that is a good line that captures that exact scene that he, he was like, I wanted to inspire you, but not inspire you to copy me and put yourself in danger. You know, I just wanted to inspire people to do better. So I thought that was a very good line. I love when he's got one of them down, and he, you know, he's the guy's like, "What's the difference between you and me?" And the guy, and Batman turns to him and says, "I'm not wearing hockey pads," and you know, and I thought, "Wow, that's a pretty good line." In the middle of all of that, the scarecrow is captured, and I want to tell you. I, I I felt weird about that the first time I saw this because I liked Cillian Murphy. I liked that Scarecrow character from Batman Begins, and it felt like we were just sweeping him under the rug pretty quick. But if you, I, I don't I don't buy that because I mean I I don't know if he necessarily even needed to be in this movie, let alone swept under the rug because he was the person in the first movie. Unless this is a cartoon, you don't carry villain to villain to villain to the movie. You know what I'm saying? So he had his due in Batman Begins. Maybe they thought of putting this in because maybe we needed closure. And if this is what we needed for closure, I think it was perfect. One scene, five minutes, we figured out what happened to the Scarecrow. Boom, done. 
I happen to agree with Anna here. I think that it was done the right way. They didn't really do anything at the end of Batman Begins to let us know what happened with the Scarecrow character, so here's a way to say, oh, yeah, I remember we were fighting this guy. Well, he's captured. Now we have a new villain to face. So I liked how they did it as well. I think it was the right move. Give the give the audience a, a knowledge of what happened with in the meantime with between Batman and Scarecrow. In the midst of all that, Bruce realizes the bat suit needs an update, so he goes to uh, Fox, played by Morgan Freeman again, who's now the CEO of the company, and I mean, they have a, always have great scenes together, and he gives him this diagram, and he says the thing that I, I just feel like this is, is motivated much by the actors that have had to wear the bat suit as the character. He's like, you want to move your head. And, you know, Anna, you and I talked about the limited movement that the bat suit has offered these actors. Michael Keaton just sort of worked on a swivel. Uh, Val Kilmer actually moved around in it pretty good. He's pretty athletic. Uh, but but Christian Bale had done a pretty good job with it. But it, I love that they referenced the fact that the suit doesn't work like this. we we got to do something. we got to change this thing. So they come up with more like a plate system instead of a, a full rubber suit that he's going to wear. I liked the update. I thought it was really smart. It's very modern. Again, they go back to the, the very realistic type of technology. Yeah, I have relatives in the military. Their armor isn't like a sleeve they wear. It's a set of plates that they put in and out. So it, it works on that level. I like that. And they gave, they gave that to us early on to let us know we're changing everything about Batman starting in the first 15 minutes of this thing. Well, also, it's like we've said throughout all these Batman podcasts, he's a real person. There's a teeny nugget of realism or reality in the whole Batman character because he's supposed to be a real person. He doesn't have superpowers and all this stuff is technology it, all his quote-unquote superpowers are technology and his money and his resources so i think that's good to have a maybe just a small little basis in reality while that's all happening too we're introduced to some some interesting crime we're introduced to the joker in a, in a bank robbery essentially one of the mog banks gets hit by the joker and he he does it. I mean, the robbery is so neat. I mean, it's like this plan, this school bus, and every all the criminals kill each other because he told them all to, but they didn't know it. it. It's really well orchestrated, and I love in the fact that he's you know walking out of the bank and the the you know the mob bank leader or whatever has tried to shoot him. That's how you know this is a mob bank. The bank president's got a twelve gauge shotgun under his desk. So anyway, you know he shoots him in the leg, and the guy's like, "You have any idea which, who you're stealing from?" Criminals used to have some class in this town, and I'm like, well, "This is awesome! It's like somebody ripping off the Godfather." And he turns around and he puts a smoke grenade in his mouth, and it's just like you have no idea what's going to happen. And this this of course sends the the, uh, you know, the, the criminals freaking out. You know, they, they, they turn to their chief accountant and he's telling them that he's going to help them, you know, cha- he's going to move all their money to China and help them launder them through a TV set and all this. And then the Joker comes in and he offers to protect them. Uh, really, when he says, your problem is not, you know, the cops, it's Batman. You need to deal with Batman now because he's got people, you know, organizing and, and starting to think they can, you know, take your place in this town. But, they don't accept his plan. They go with, with Lau. I, I want to talk about the whole Joker's M.O. and get up being very different, comparing how Ledger worked with uh, with a little bit of Nicholson before we get too deep into that. I mean, what what did you guys think of the Joker? Well, they didn't waste any time getting to him in this one. I don't know how to explain it. I thought it was the same but different. 
I thought it was a, I thought um, Heath Ledger did a better take on the Joker because his wasn't, his was more psychotic than cartoony, which is what I think Nolan was going for and I think what you need in this movie. So, I, but there were still some things underlying that I thought they were the same, but I really can't explain. I, I like this version of the Joker much better. I like the, you know, we know that the Joker gets disfigured because, well, in Nicholson's case, he gets disfigured because of an accident in chemicals. In this one, Joker tells us many different stories of how he got disfigured, which I think is cool. But e- either way, his face actually looks like it's disfigured, whereas Nicholson's just looks bizarre. I like that he's uh, very sadistic in this one because as a criminal you think someone like him would have to be a psychopath and he plays a psychopath in this it seems like he's a smart guy but he's a psychopath and you know the bank scene you can see that he's very smart because he orchestrates the whole thing I love the the end of the bank robbery where uh they're sitting there and the one guy looks at who ends up being the joker and says I suppose the Joker told you to shoot me. And he goes, no, I shoot the bus driver. And the guy says, what bus driver? And the bus comes crashing through the door, or the wall. And I thought that was an, an excellent scene, excellent planning there. And, you know, even coming into the mob, he comes alone and is able to get all these guys' attention. I mean, they could have shot and killed him easily with all these bosses here. He's alone. He comes in there, does this little magic trick, and captures their attention and none of them uh, he's got enough of an audience where they're not going to try and kill him right then and there when brian was talking i thought of something he he creates chaos as we said in the plot summary but throughout all these scenes like the bus scene and like you said the scene with the mob and even later on in the movie and we'll probably talk about scene in jail he remains calm in all this chaos like the guy the during the bank robbery scene, one of the guys is holding a gun to him saying, I'm going to, I bet you were told to shoot me. Like Brian said, and he's like, no, I will shoot the bus driver. You know, not like, like, oh no, oh no. He's just calm, but creates all this chaos. And I just saw that parallel and I thought I'd share it. It's a neat contrast. The, the thing I like the most about this is, and, and I liked Nicholson's portrayal. Okay, I, I, I think that's pretty well documented in, that, in the first podcast. I, I like the fact that we don't ever get to see him as whatever he was before he was the Joker in this one. We're not going to do an origin story for the Joker. He's just going to be this full-on force. And if you if you watched any of the interviews and some of the documentary stuff that comes with the, the DVD, Nolan and, and the other actors talk about this. And they talk about the fact that in the first Batman, they had to build the Joker. And then they, they built him and killed him off in the same movie. In this one, he's already fully deranged and in full force. There's no setup for him. He's just there. He's a shark. And I liked that. I liked the way he just commanded presence. And that's a good pickup, Anna. He is calm throughout all this. It, it makes him even more sinister and creepy and much less cartoony. It's very, very different. So, uh, you, I, you know, we got we to gotta talk a little bit about the, the, the mob subplot here. You know, a lot of the mobs in jail, but they, they're still obviously prevalent and doing things. But the police are starting to make some some dense in this and Batman's working closely with Gordon and and his people and 
they're trying to figure out, well, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to you know, bring this in? And they realize they've got to have this chief accountant, this loud guy. And I love the whole setup of how Batman and Alfred work out of how they're going to go and get him out of China. The whole, he breaks in and he's got the parachute that the big plane picks him up. I mean, it's a great action scene. It's incredible, but it's smart. Again, it's based in all this, this sort of realism. And they talk about, you know, the CIA did this back in the 60s. And uh, it was just, it was so cool. I, I like that. But uh, I, I love the fact that they, they've involved the cops and the district attorney's office as an integral part of what they're doing. Batman is not so much an outlaw in this as he is like the personal SWAT team of the police department. Anna, you and I talked about how in like Batman for uh, Batman Returns, where the heck are the police? You know, it seems like Batman's the only enforcer. In this one, we get, you know, thrown the lines about how corrupt the police are still, but there's still a group of them that he's working closely with. And I liked how they integrated all those people together. It's a nice change of pace from the earlier ones where you never see the police police or the SWAT team or any kind of law enforcement. You know, Bruce and with the help of Lucius Fox and Alfred put together a plan to go and get Lau out of China. And I, I think it was a brilliant plan. You know, Fox goes because they're getting ready to do business with Lau's company in China and they've decided to not do that, but it's all a ruse to get to him. And Fox has come up with this little sonar mechanism essentially in the case of a cell phone now this will play in much later in the plot but they they use it here to set it up it's you know good script writing we're going to set something up in act one and use it again in act five and they uh, they set that up and he goes there to do that alfred has arranged for this plane that essentially will as batman grabs lao he shoots a parachute out of the the broken window and the plane comes by and picks him up they have a really integral plot there to work on that what did you think of the fact that they they brought more of fox into this i happen to think that that's a function of the fact that morgan freeman is so fun to watch on screen and they just kept giving him more and more to do i agree with you i like morgan freeman a lot and he there's just Something something about him, maybe he has the it factor, X factor, he's just a great actor, but I'm glad they gave him more time, and I think that it's cool, I, from a cool standpoint, I think it's cool, because he's the one with all the technology and stuff, so you're getting all these kind of cool gadgets, which is what Batman's all about. I think it's necessary to bring Fox in at some point, and I think this is a great time to do it because, you know, Fox is the one who's helping Bruce get up, get all the technology that Batman uses. So I think that eventually he has to be let in on everything that's going on, and, and now he you see that he is by the fact that it's him and Bruce going here. He's setting it up for Batman to do this, so he obviously now knows that Bruce and Batman are one and the same. So I like that they're using him more and in, in more of the, the sequence. And I think that that's more true to some of the comics, too, because he's a big part of the the cover-up of Batman. Yeah, yeah, he is. Batman brings Lau back and it gift wraps him, essentially, to Commissioner Gordon. And then Dent and the Gotham PD arrest 500-plus criminals based on his testimony or information and bring them all to court at the same day. That's a great scene. It's like, how do you all plead? And just mass chaos you know, breaks out in the courtroom. But it was really neat because it, it, you start to feel like 
you know, Gotham is starting to turn the corner here, and that's all part of Bruce's plan. You know, then the end of the film, the Batman begins. He and Rachel have this conversation about you know there will come a day when Gotham won't need Batman anymore, and you and I can be together. And he's trying to lay on her that look, that is coming. This Harvey Dent guy is for real. I, I, I think that you know the police are making strides. I'm not going to have to be Batman forever. But she's moved on. She's in love with Dent now. Oddly enough, it's an interesting angle and and well played. I think it is an interesting angle and it moves the plot, and it's well-written, but I just can't... And I guess they kind of left it open-ended in the other one because you just assumed that they were going to be together, just like in the first Batman, you assumed he was going to be with Vicky, and then they just kind of brushed over it and swept it under the carpet that they didn't get along or whatever, or that she couldn't handle the whole Batman thing. But... um it is an interesting angle. It's something to it's something very good to do with the Rachel character instead of having her just sit there and kind of be the damsel in distress, which could have very easily happened if the screenwriting wasn't so good. Yeah, I like I like the fact that they did this with Rachel because you know that she's kind of hesitant with Bruce and and since he had come back to Gotham, she saw he was kind of a different person. Then she learns that he's Batman, so she's really hesitant about it. And you could tell that Bruce Wayne really wants to be with her, and it'll be a key thing with, you know, the letter later on, with Alfred in the letter and everything else, that he is truly in love with Rachel, but Rachel, while she probably has feelings for him, knows that she's going to play second fiddle to this Batman and, and his, and what he needs to do. And that's not how she wants to be. And so I like that they introduced that she and Harvey Dent are now going out. It's a little odd of a dynamic to have the DA and the assistant DA be dating, but you know, you'd think, but uh, I'll say this, we, we got to talk about the recast here. What did you guys make of Maggie Gyllenhaal versus Katie Holmes? I think our opinions on Katie Holmes are, are well documented in that last uh, episode. But what did y'all think of Maggie Gyllenhaal and the way she played Rachel? Well, first off, I, first off, Katie Holmes gets on my last nerves, and that is well documented too. And secondly, um, I think why Rachel was killed off ultimately in the end is because they were probably expecting Katie Holmes to play this role again and didn't want her for more than one movie. I, if I were Christopher Nolan, that's what I would do, especially after her bad acting in the first one and all the craziness with Tom Cruise and stuff and hanging around with Posh Spice, which I actually like Victoria Beckham very much, but hanging around doing all that stuff in Surrey, talking to her dolls and stuff. Yeah, I would just kill her off if I was the screenwriter. So, yeah, I'm glad Maggie Gyllenhaal took over. I think she, I don't think Katie Holmes could have played the, that was one thing I was thinking. I don't think she could have played the Bruce Rachel angle that they did. And I think Maggie Gyllenhaal did a good job. And I will disagree again. <laughs> I enjoy Katie Holmes. I don't have anything wrong with her. I do not like Victoria Beckham. So, hey, we're on two different wavelengths here. <laughs> but aside from that, um, it, for me, you know, you know, Katie Holmes, I, I really enjoyed her take on it. I didn't care for Jillian Hall's take on it very well. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, is that the reason Katie Holmes wasn't back is because her husband didn't want her playing this part. It, which is ridiculous. Uh, but 
She yeah, I, I don't want my actress wife to be in a billion dollar movie because look, everybody exactly. knew this was going to make money. I mean, come on, exactly. Uh, it, uh, it Tom made Cruise, no sense. idiot. Uh, there we go. So. Yeah, Tom Cruise is a moron. But um, I, I didn't like Gyllenhaal as much as I did Katie Holmes in this. And and you may be right. She probably Katie Holmes probably couldn't have pulled off the the Bruce Rachel thing as well, but I didn't think Jill Hall did that great either. So Well she she wasn't that great, I'll agree with you, Brian, but I do think she looked more mature and played a more mature Rachel than Katie Holmes did. And I that's what I, like I was that. gonna say. I I thought she was more believable as an ADA than Katie Holmes would have been. Or Katie Holmes was in the first movie. I thought she was more believable as an assistant district attorney where Katie Holmes, like I said in the first one, just seemed like she was in a school play acting or something, or in a college play. And, you know, but anyway, Dawson, we'll agree da- to disagree. Da- Dawson's Batman. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I did, I also like the fact that the desperation of the criminals, it's a nice tone. It shows that Batman's efforts are working, Dent's efforts are working, Gordon's efforts are working. They're getting to them. I, I like that. I like, and I like this idea that, you know, what you often think about with, especially in the Batman series, it's not just the cops that are corrupt. It's not just the mob. Everybody's corrupt. The mayor's corrupt. The local businessmen are corrupt. Everybody's corrupt. But the mayor and the DA and the guy who eventually is going to be the police chief and, and the police chief and at least one judge are all on the up and up. So it's like there's these five people and then everybody else in the in the world that, that's against them in, in Gotham. But I like that balance. It, it sets a really nice tone for the whole film. It does, and it's a good contrast from the last film where everything was just hopeless, where Falcone was telling um, Bruce that he had a judge and a lawyer and a district attorney and a cop all in the bar with him, and he had no qualms with shooting him right there. So I think it was, I think it was a nice touch, like you said, to show that this is working, that they're on to something, that they are making progress. And too bad that's all going to get them landed in bad water because in desperation, of course, the criminals turn to the Joker and he begins a terror campaign against the Gotham PD, the leadership of the city, and Batman. And it, it's an attempt on, on Dent's life. It, it, he kills the police commissioner, kills the judge, is going to try to kill the mayor. I mean, that that's a pretty... Uh, th- there was some in- intense action happening when the Joker turned his screws on the city. And I- I'll tell you, I liked the idea that criminals in this film, uh, you know, all- so often evil is dumb in-, in a movie like this, and they're not. Okay, you got us. Well, guess what? We're coming back with another punch, and it's going to be twice as bad. And I- the retaliation was was brutal. It's very much like the Empire Strikes Back. Okay, you blow up the Death Star, well, I'm bringing my you know, big metal camels in, and we're going to blow your eye station away. I mean, that, that's really what this felt like to me, was, was that scene in the Empire Strikes Back. Well, I think also it goes back to that little kernel of realism that what do criminals do in the real world is when something doesn't work and they're catching on, they go do something smarter. And it's like um, my husband made a comment to someone a couple weeks ago was that if criminals aren't necessarily dumb, that if they could put that energy and intellect and talent into doing something legitimate, they'd be very successful. So, I mean, 
I mean, I think that's a little bit of reality that criminals in the real world would do that. Only in movies are cr- criminals just stupid, like you read out of Jay Leno's headlines or something. <laughs> the one, the criminals who can't shoot, but the hero can always hit him with one shot. I love that. Yeah. Um, I like this whole thing. I, I love the Commissioner Gordon storyline where they he's shot dead, but you find out that he's not dead. In the in the later in the movie, I loved that whole thing. I thought that was brilliant. I did, I never would have thought of that. And when I was first watching this movie, that's the first thing I said was, "Holy crap! How can they kill Commissioner Gordon already? Because he's such yeah. an integral part in the Batman lore." Yeah. And here he is dead, and it it actually shocked me to see him come back. I did not actually expect that. Well, you know, the thing about that is. It- they're referencing two big action films here. Lethal Weapon, the original Lethal Weapon, where, remember, part of that big plot setup is that they think they kill Mel Gibson, they think they kill Riggs, and then they use that to their advantage on them. And they're referencing the film Heat. If you've ever seen that, it's a big crime ensemble with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and the big bank robbery, the way all that goes down in the city streets and the mass chaos of all that. They're referencing those two things in this film, and I like that because those are two very realistic crime-type films, and they're integrating that into the Batman world again you know I said five minutes into Batman Begins I realized we're in a different world of Batman now than we've ever been with Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher it's another thing that just differentiates this you know part of the series from what's already been those guys would have never incorporated something like that they'd have brought in Pee Wee's Playhouse to be a part of the, the plot summary instead of you know Lethal Weapon and Heat but I like that it, it, it did give it a real it gave it a realism to sort of tie it uh, to itself the the terror campaign's very real, and I I like how I mean, granted, there's there's some setup that's going on here that we got to give this movie a lot of leniency because Batman digs a bullet out of a wall and he shoots images of it and he recreates it digitally and he gets a thumbprint off of it and that leads him to a trap that the Joker set up for him. I mean, it's a little far fetched, but because everything else is working so well you're willing to give them that that kind of a big plot thing. I mean, do y'all agree with that? It's forensic science. It's things that they can actually do in real life, so it's not that far-fetched. Yeah, I thought that, too. That I thought that, I thought that it wasn't that far-fetched because that is what would happen in the real world. Well, I, you know, I've watched a lot of forensic files. I hadn't seen them firing, you know, nine millimeter shells out of a Gatling gun into bricks to double check it. But uh, you know what? There, is, there's some basis of, uh, for something like that to maybe happen eventually. So I'll go with you there. But this is Batman. It, He's supposed to have better technology than like the authorities true. and stuff. So good, good point. Dent in a bold move asked Batman to come forward and reveal himself, but steps in his place and says that he's Batman hoping to draw the Joker out so that they can capture him and that the real Batman will intervene, which all happens perfectly. And I want to tell you, that was a huge leap of faith for him to do that. And it also played in the Rachel Bruce dynamic. Bruce is there getting ready to turn himself in. Harvey does it, and she's looking at him like, you're going to let him take the fall for this? And they even you know, have that conversation later on. I like that. It's, it's, you said it perfectly, Brian. She knows this will always drive a wedge between them ultimately and that's why she can't be with him and he doesn't see that necessarily but it it, it was an interesting dynamic because it made Dent look more heroic than Bruce Wayne it yeah it did and it also showed that they were working together that that 
Dent wasn't trying to undermine Batman, and he kind of wanted Batman to keep the status quo, and that would never happen if Batman revealed himself. So I, that's what I've always taken why Dent did it, because Dent realized that the city needed Batman as is, and if he did come forward, then that would just drive even more chaos into the city. I agree, and I like this whole dynamic, too, with Batman deciding to turn himself in. Alfred's reaction is he's not happy about it, and and Bruce asks him what he would do, and Alfred plainly says, I would I would endure. The, 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 this city needs you. You can't turn yourself in. You can't give up if you do the Joker wins. And, and I like that whole dynamic about it. And I like the fact that uh, you know Harvey Dent's smart enough to do what he did, to, to sit there and just say, I'm the Batman and, and take the blame, is, is a good a show of his character at this point in the movie. Um, so I really enjoyed this whole sequence. Yeah, it's great. And it's, it's a payoff to what Batman will ultimately do for him at the end of the film too. We, we talk about that when we get back to it, but it's, it's a bold move and I love the whole chase sequence, how it goes down. I mean, and I want to tell you, there's some, some of your favorite television actors are part of the SWAT team. If you want to go look them up folks, as they, they lead dent through the, the streets and they go to the underbelly of, of Gotham, you get the Batmobile back out there in the chase and Joker's got a couple vans with a lot of guns and they're shooting the place. I mean, there's bullets flying everywhere. It's, a huge action chase underneath the city with Dent in the in the police SWAT van, and what we don't know is that Gordon is the one driving the van, and I, I did like that. It was so cool, but Anna, we got to talk about the showdown part one between Batman and the Joker here, because Batman escapes on the Bat Cycle, which was so cool, and uh, he's chasing the Joker down, and he does this little, again, a reference to the Empire Strikes Back, you know, he trips up the AT-AT, you know, with, with the little circular thing and does that great flip with the 18-wheel of the Joker's in, and the Joker gets out with the gun, and he's like, come on, come get me, and Bruce is coming head on at him, and he ducks out of the way at the last second, and I was like, just like in the first one, Michael Keaton can't hit the broadside of a barn shooting at the Joker, the Joker takes one shot, and the bat, the bat cycles out of the way, but I like the synergy of that, the way those, those things mapped over, did you get yeah, that from I it? got that. That and I like I liked it as well, and I also like that. Um, and a lot of the prom- that was the scene they used, and a lot of the promotion was Heath Ledger in that scene with the truck on fire and behind them and stuff like that. And I thought that was that I thought that was really cool. That's my first image of this whole Dark Knight movie, and I think that was that was really cool. I like this scene too. I think it's uh, there's some amusing things in in this scene. Uh, a fire truck is on fire. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> the Joker, you know, amused by Batman's toys, which you know is a reference back to the the Batman movie from '89. You know, Joker saying, "Where does he get such wonderful toys?" Well, here the Joker looks at the Bat bike and he says, "Now that is a bike," which I like. Um, just this whole scene was really good, and I like. The fact that he's willing to take Batman on and and just standing his ground. Again, very calm in, in the face of what could be very disastrous for him, yet he just stands there and is willing to take it and knows that he's going to come out fine. It, it's it's amazing, amazingly well played. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very well played. And, of course, they get the drop on him and uh, get him down and... and uh 
Gordon arrests him and they take him in. I mean, it's like, ah, oh, it all worked out perfectly. And, and Dent pays it off with the whole, you know, I didn't know Batman was going to show up, but I assumed he'd do the right thing. And I'm sure enough glad he did because he saved my, you know, my tail in the end and everybody's laughing. And it seems like, you know, if you wanted to stop the movie right there, it's a good point, you know, that we, we've made the second part of our film here. But, <laughs> the Joker's got another plan. And I love, again, this guy's insane, okay? I mean, he clearly is insane. But he's got everything. He's got these people pegged so well. He knows what's going to happen. His henchmen kidnap Dent and Rachel and hold them hostage under a bomb threat while he's incarcerated, forcing Batman and the police to you know, frantically search. But, but during the setup of all of that, Gordon's trying to interrogate him, and he's giving him nothing. And Gordon leaves, they flip the lights on, and Batman's there. And I want to tell you, that's, the, that's one of the best scenes of dialogue in the Batman series. It's probably the best one, hands down. Those two going at each other for that five or six minutes is absolutely incredible. And I, it, it's one of the big reasons Heath Ledger won an Academy Award for his portrayal. Everything he lays on Batman there, all that reverse psychology, he's not wrong about any of it. He keeps, you know, don't talk like them. You're not one of them. You know, you're a freak just like me. And it's, they play all those dynamics. And it's just, it's such rich screen to watch Christian Bale and Heath Ledger just chew up the scenery there. And I think it's good, too. I like that scene because they're not necessarily fighting physically. They're fighting psychologically. And that's, you know, really hard to put on screen and people see that and I think that's why that scene works so well. Yeah, and I love this whole sequence of the scene too. I mean, they really played this off great because the first thing you see is the Joker in in the uh the holding cell and that you see a guy who's complaining about his stomach hurting, right? And it's just seeming like nothing at the time, but it comes to be a very important part at the end of this whole this whole sequence, this guy keeps complaining about it, and the police just tell him, you know, whatever. And the Joker's just sitting in the corner, uh, you know, minding his own business, licking his lips, whatever. And, and you know, I just love how they set that all, all up. And then after the whole uh, Batman interrogation, and the Joker tells him, you know, I've got uh, two bombs, and in one spot you have Rachel, and the other spot you have Harvey Dent. Who are you going to choose? And, you know, all this stuff. And it ends up being that the guy has a cell phone in his stomach, and that's the trigger. It's just amazing. It, it is. It's so well thought out. And it's, uh, and it's again, it's such a tight script. We're talking about how tight the last script was. This script is just as tight. And, and to have so much going on, it's amazing. They're keeping it all together. It's, it's a sign of a good director. It's a sign of a good, a good production team and good editing, too, to keep all of that paced and happening because there is a real tension it's like who are we going to get to first you know we've played that game with batman before in our batman series anna when we were at the end of batman forever it's you bruce you're going to choose the love of your life or you're going to choose you know robin and he chooses both you know because batman can cheat the odds that's essentially what what the deal is well here he can't he's going one direction the cops are going the other and they're trying to to race to get to to this place I, i i love Love how that all works out. And I want to tell you, that that's if Maggie Gyllenhaal did nothing else, the way she played that scene where she's on a cell phone, Dent's on a cell phone, they're talking to each other before. They know they're you know somebody's about to die. They see what's going on around them. And she's telling him how much she loves him and that, yes, she'll marry him and all this stuff. And then, boom, out of nowhere, it just goes off. I That, that was so gut-wrenching. You just ripped that character off the screen from us. And it was bold. I, I like that move. I, I did like the scene. I think uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal pulled it off 
very very well. I, I thought it was I thought it was good. It was a good way to put the cell phones there, and you know, instead of like if this if we didn't have that technology, I'm sure the movie would have done something old fashioned, like you know, they're tied together or something, or some or, you know, or something like that. But I thought it I thought it was very clever, very good, and I think she did a really good job acting as well. Yeah, I like this whole scene. They needed a way to turn Harvey Dent into Two Face, and they used this as the reason to do it. And I, it plays well because if if you're in a situation like he's faced, where it's you or your, you know, fiance, I guess she was at the time, uh, that's going to turn a man insane to know that they came to save you, and to think that they came only to save you because that's what he thinks. He think. He thinks they only came to save him, and they didn't bother with Rachel, and it it goes on to cause him, you know, to go psycho. But I like the the way they did it to have him in two separate places to have to choose. I like how he he told them the opposite of where they were because he knew that Batman would go to save Rachel, but he also knew that he needed Batman to save Harvey Dent. So I like how they did that as well. This is the in the whole. Nolan installment and all these installments. This is the first villain where we kind of do have a backstory to. We understand why he why he became Two Face, and there's even more of a backstory than the one in the Schumacher films. This is the first time we have a backstory as to why he's like that. You know. Yeah, and, and it's worth noting here that this is something created by Nolan and, and David Goyer and, and Nolan's brother Jonathan Nolan. The Rachel Dawes and the way Harvey Dent becomes Two Face is something they've created. It, Harvey Dent becomes Two Face in the comic books the way it happened in the Joel Schumacher Batman Forever little flashback thing where he gets sprayed by the poison and Batman can't save him in the courtroom. I, I like it though. I like the fact that they've broken from tradition and that it, they give the man some real angst. It, it's a very bold move but it's very cool and you know what if they're going to kill off a character that's kind of part of the central core group why not kill the one you just made up for the thing anyway that's another reason to kill her it makes sense but it also gives bruce some more edge too that's you know he loves her he is in love with that woman and wants to be with her and now she's gone so he's got to control his own rage when it comes to this it's such a neat triangle oh i agree and i think they pulled it off brilliantly this is the, the, the point, again, in the movie where they could have had it end, obviously with a, a, another one coming down the road, they could have had it end because once we move from this scene and into the hospital scene, it's almost, again, like it's another movie. It is. It, it is almost another movie. And there's a nice thing that goes on in between the, the rise of Two-Face and, and what happens next with the Joker and the mob is they're obsessed with where's our money, where's our money, and he just lights up a pile of it behind him. And I loved that. He's like, it's not about money. It's about sending a message. And, of course, they're all freaking out because they cannot believe this guy just lit up $20 million like it was nothing. And and he even pays that off later on when he's, he's talking to Harvey Dent in the hospital after it, the city starts to evacuate under bomb threats and stuff like that, and he's going to blow up a hospital because he's still trying to get Batman to come out, and he, he basically gets Harvey Dent's hospital uh, pretty much evacuated, and he's talking to him. He said, you know, it's amazing what you know a couple of gans of gasoline and a couple of bullets did to this city. You know, his crime wave is cheap, and it's so contemporary, too, because isn't that, you know, domestic terrorism? Isn't that what terrorism is? It's not sophisticated warfare. It's 
household items turned against you. I mean, what a what a smart and scary subplot. And I think what, like I said before, what makes him scarier is how calm he is and all this chaos. I mean, of course, this like I said before, this chaos he created, but how calm he is. I mean, look at, like I said, look at the jail scene. Look at the hospital where he just comes home. He comes in the hospital dressed as a nurse. And I, I like that scene because I think, um, I just think, um, the way he's walking and he puts the hand sanitizer on, I think that's kind of funny yet, yet psychotic. I thought it was like just a little touch of humor with this psychotic guy, but you know, that's, fu I, that's funny, but not in a real cartoony way. But I just love that scene when he's talking to Denton and walks out real funny in the whole nurse uniform and does a hand sanitizer. But he is, he's just basically, you know, telling, Dan that no it's about the chaos it's about this it's not about money it's not about people it's just about this live your life with no rules or anything and yeah you you had rules and look at where it exactly. got you you know and, and I, I love that that his whole his whole treatise about the world on a level makes sense because he's again he's not saying anything that isn't true from his point of view that everything is bad and people are ultimately you know all everyone's ultimately evil at their core and he's going to test that in a little while but it, that's his belief and so far it's all playing out like he plans it but but yet he has no plan and he says that and i'm like going but wait a minute the the orchestration is unbelievable here and he says it so like you say he says it so matter of factly you know he's just sitting down having a heart to heart with harvey dent and you know telling you well look where your rules got you and i play by my own rules and stuff like that and i just i just think he does and it it's more to how well heath ledger did this character and he did deserve the academy award yeah. for it so I, I just think it's wonderful it's fabulous i like the whole uh, the whole hospitalized i'm gonna blow up a hospital scene with uh you know the other subplot where there's a worker at wayne enterprises who is going to reveal the identity of batman and the joker turns it on him and says you know i don't want you to reveal batman I, instead i want someone to kill this guy and if they don't i'm gonna blow up a hospital <laughs> And I like that. And the, the, also the part where, where it's Bruce Wayne who ultimately saves this guy who's going to turn in Batman by stopping the vehicle from hitting hit, uh, the uh, escape vehicle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's so much going on again. There, there's a whole other one here, too, where Bruce Wayne, you remember the cell phone that was used to capture Lau in the Chinese building? Well, he's essentially turned every cell phone into the city into a homing beacon. And he and Fox have this, this big argument about it. And it's not like yelling at each other, but Fox is telling him this isn't right. And it's a commentary on, you know, Homeland Security and the Patriot Act and all that kind of stuff. But he's doing this because he believes that it's the only way I'm ever going to catch this guy is I've got to basically listen in on the entire city. And again, this, this film is rich with these very realistic and contemporary subplots set around all this fanciful comic book stuff. And it, but what did you guys think of that, that whole, uh, the ethical dilemma that Fox and Batman are, are and Fox and Bruce Wayne are in there when they're trying to hunt down the Joker. I think Batman is taking it as whatever means necessary. Yes, this isn't the ideal way to do it. This may not be the most ethical way to do it, but I've got to do it. 
I've got to do whatever means necessary to catch this guy because he's such a menace and he's so detrimental to the city. And I, that's how I think. I think Fox takes a more, not necessarily realistic, but a more ethical approach to it. Like, I, you know, this is Big Brother. This is too much. This is godlike or whatever and i won't have any part of it i will do what i need to to help you but i won't have any part of it beyond that and i think batman is just seeing this as a means to an end i really 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 like this scene um i like the fact that you know bruce or batman or bruce wayne has always had the the ethical moral background where he uh, you won't go as far as to kill anyone. He he's just there to to, to stop these crimes and and stop these criminals. And now he's kind of turning into uh, someone who would go against his own principles here. And Lucius Fox calls him out on it. Says, "Hey, you know this this is not the way we do things. And what you've done with my technology, uh, I don't like it. I don't like what you've done here. And I will resign if this stays." going and i like that whole scene i think it's a a very powerful scene and you know maybe a scene that tells us that while batman's going to use this at this point maybe next time he'll think twice before he does it well you know this is there's another scene earlier in the film too when michael kane is is telling that story about the robber that was throwing away the 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 rubies and all that and it's the whole line about you know some men just want to see the world burn both of Bruce's closest confidants and if if you want to call them mentors this what they are the older men in his life who are his father figures have have called him out on stuff that he's wrong about and he hasn't reacted to it positively it's the first time we've seen anyone in a Batman film stand up to Batman and say you are out of line and I liked that. I liked how those those two big scenes. Had, I mean, you couldn't get two better actors to do it than Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine because they weren't chewing him out as much as calling him on it. You know, like, look, man, you, you can't just go any means necessary to to catch this guy. And you know, Michael Caine sums it up as you don't understand what you're dealing with here. You know, this is not somebody who is going to ever respond to your reason. You're going to have to destroy him. Are you ready to do that? And that, that's a big point. I liked that in, in this film. It made it so smart. I mean, you'd never see that with, like, Dr. Freeze in, in Batman and Robin. You know, that would never that scene wouldn't have ever worked. In this one, it's just so darn smart. I agree. and But I also think, and I've been thinking this the whole thing, is that um, they're not the only ones that kind of tell Batman what to do. Rachel tells him what to do, but maybe more as Bruce Wayne. And sometimes I think Rachel's the only one he really listens to. You're you're right. And she's been doing that since the first movie, too. You know? Yeah, I was thinking, actually, of Katie Holmes when she was telling on Bruce, you're not looking at the city right. You don't see the poverty. You don't see this. You're just kind of in your own little world with your own misery. And she was just like, yeah, there's Falcone. You want to go kill him? Just be my guest. Walk right in there and do it. And I've seen it with um, Rachel in this movie, too. She seems to be the only one he listens to. Like, in this movie, she's like, we can't be together. You know, you are never going to shed this. And she seems to be the only one he listens to. In the meanwhile, Joker, of course, sets Harvey Dent on this rampage for... 
I don't know if he's on a rampage for justice or if he's on a rampage for revenge or what, but in the process, Dent kills the mob boss, uh, even inadvertently. He kills a crooked cop. He kidnaps Gordon's family, and he's doing this whole flip of the coin thing. And that's I like the fact that they kept that in with the, the Two-Faced character. He's got this, you know, they pay it off earlier that he's got a coin he flips when he's making a decision, and it's both sides are heads. Well, now one side and the explosion is all scarred. The other side is real, much like he is. And so he's flipping this coin, live or die, on everybody. And he does it with the mob boss, and it comes up live, and he said, too bad the drivers came up the other way, and he shoots the driver, the car wrecks, and it kills the mob boss. And then the cop in the bar and all that, I, I like that he goes on this this rampage but it's a I mean it's a quick turn for Aaron Eckhart and as much you know praise as Heath Ledger gets for his performance in this I think Aaron Eckhart really did a good job with playing the two sides here the heroic and noble Harvey Dent and then the crazed insane and and out for blood two-face I think you're right and I was thinking that as I was watching it earlier that he kind of got a little overshadowed by Heath Ledger's performance, and that might not have been necessary. I think he did a very good job. It's just Heath Ledger just kind of overshadowed him a little bit. Well, you know, when you die, you do that. Yeah, and I, after, after, after him dying before the movie came out probably didn't help any, and I was wondering if Eckhart would have gotten more praise if Heath Ledger hadn't have died before this movie came out. It's different sides of the villain. You know, the Joker is is the pure villain in this, along with the mob. You know, they're the villains. Harvey Dent is just a, I guess he's he's a, a vigilante in this. I mean, you you feel for him and almost understand his plight. But I think it would be harder to play that like for three quarters of the movie. You're almost the hero. You know, you're one step from the hero. You're the news, I think they reference at the beginning, like Gotham's new son or the new savior of Gotham or something like that. I can't remember the exact line. And then for the last 25% of the movie, you're on this vigilante killing spree. So, I mean, I think as an actor, that would be a tougher role to play than you just, you're a psychopath the whole time. Not to get morbid or anything, but I don't think that I don't think that Heath Ledger had a chance. Or, or well, I mean, he, he played it very well, but I don't think he would have been considered as much for the Best Supporting Actor nomination had he not died. I think he did a great job. He probably deserved to be there, but had he not died, it wouldn't have been as big a deal. I don't think, and that's why he got the praise he got. But you know, the, the all the actors in this movie d- did a great job. I- I agree with you. Oh, yeah. They they all brought the A-game in. And I agree. I think Aaron Eckhart is a bit overshadowed because of the circumstances surrounding Heath Ledger's death and the, the, the over-the-top character he played. And it, it's so iconic. And, uh, again, I, I go with, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on this because I've criticized this film series before for having villains that are they're marginal at best and they their motives are understandable you know you understand dr freeze's motives in batman and robin as stupid as that movie is his motives make sense to you okay and there was an easy solve to it in this one you're sub- i think you're you're supposed to carry over that 75% of the time we've rooted for harvey dent into this you don't want him to die you want batman to catch him and reason with him and i it's it's just a, it's just a neat you know, dynamic that they've set up here. Again, it's, it's so it's so cool. The city evacuates under a bomb threat. 
And there are these two boats, one with citizens and one with criminals on it. And they're set in play by the Joker where both boats have bombs on them and each group has the controls to the other boat's bomb. And one of them's got to blow it up blow the other up before midnight or they all die and this is all captured on the news and i mean it's like tmz's out there i mean it's huge and this is all while batman is chasing him through the city i loved this there's some scenes here with people who who are not characters we know anything about these citizens and these criminals and we get such good dialogue and dynamics of what happens with the quote, civilized people and the, the criminal element of the world. And uh, Brad, did you notice who one of the criminals was? I did. I recognized him quite well. And I actually, I was watching the last 35 or so minutes today uh, during my lunch on my iPhone 4, which rocks, by the way. And the first thing I did was do a double take during that, because I'm like, hey, that can't be right. And then, of course, he becomes more prominent, and I'm like, yeah, it is. It's Tommy Tiny Lister, who, if you're a wrestling fan like I am, you knew played Zeus in the movie No Holds Barred, which starred Hulk Hogan, and then became a wrestler for about four months in the WWF in the late 1980s. Yeah, and he's he's always playing a heavy in these movies. Tall, African-American man. He's got kind of one eye that's a little off. He's always playing some bad dude that Arnold Schwarzenegger beats up or one of those, but he's one of the criminals. But That's a neat cameo, but what did you guys think of that whole dynamic that the Joker set up? You know, what has he said to Harvey Dent? That I'm going to you know, show you what this city's all about, really, and that, that if you take away just a few little things for these people, they'll turn on each other like cannibals. He says that to Batman, too. And and now he's put a scenario together where citizens are going to have to blow up this barge of criminals, or the criminals are going to have to blow up the citizens. Well, I think, as the scene plays out, this is the first time the Joker's philosophy is wrong. That he's trying to show what this city is about, and he's like, oh yeah, once you put them between a rock and a hard place. It'll be every man for them, for himself. And they both put the detonators down and don't do it. And I think this is the first time that he's been proven, his philosophy has been proven wrong. Oh, oh, but I, I will argue with you. We're going to disagree on this. He's not wrong. What he, what happens is what he wanted to happen or what doesn't happen, but almost happens is what he wanted to happen. The criminals, tiny lister, I'll do what you should have done 20 minutes ago throw the detonator out the window and the citizens take a boat and decide to pull the trigger. So in other words, you know, there's really the only difference between these people is, is minimal is what his theory is. And he's almost proven right. That's what's even scarier to me is that he's almost right. You know how we were talking about how dense this movie is. Yeah. I, um, I thought this scene was in Spider-Man until you just brought it up. There is so much going on in this uh, this movie. I had forgotten that scene was actually in it because I was sitting here thinking, I'm like, isn't this scene in Spider-Man? And I'm like, no, it's not. And started thinking, and I remembered the scene from one of the many times I've seen it. But I, I remember the details of it, except I don't know anything about wrestling, so I never would have picked that dude out. But, um, I mean... This like this movie it's just another point that this movie has so much going on with it. And you know, does does the movie really need this scene is a good question. Oh, I think it does. Do it pays off everything. Yeah, it pays off everything the Joker is talking about. Yeah, I agree. Um 
with what you said, Jay, with, with the fact that Joker almost got his way, but the citizens proved otherwise. You could see that the vote, the vote was like something like 396 to 139 in favor of blowing up the criminals' vote. But you could see everybody in that boat wasn't really wanting to do it until you had the one guy who stepped forward and said, you know, I'll do it, I'll take care of it, and, and takes the key and he sits there and contemplates for a while and ultimately decides not to do it and you could see the look of relief on everybody else's face. While they don't want to die themselves, they're looking at the clock noticing that it's close to midnight and they haven't been blown up yet. So they're kind of hoping that they don't have to blow this other boat up yet and eventually that's what does happen and I like that. And of course the Joker's very disappointed that he doesn't get his way in this case and, and then goes to blow up about himself and, and that's when the fight with him and Batman really intensifies yeah it, it, it definitely get gets heavy and let's talk about you know Batman using his unethical technology to, to face off with the Joker in the building again and uh, the big fight that they have I mean what did y'all think of the fight I, it's the one part of this I've always felt a little weird about I, I mean I like it I like how it ends up but it, it it feels so dark and like they, they borrowed it out of Spider-Man 3. You know, we got this half-built building and we're going to fight through it now and it's going to be a lot of quick cuts and in the dark and henchmen flying around. I mean, it was just very, very weird. Well, also, why do most of the Batman movies, like the finales, end up on a building? It's something about fistfights on buildings, yeah. Yeah, like the first one, the third one, and I, I just blocked the fourth one out of my mind, so I couldn't, <laughs> tell, you, I couldn't tell you how it ended. But um, in this one, they all, and it kind of, if you think about it, Batman Begins and Batman Returns both kind of ended in like a subway or something. So, yeah, why, I, anyway, I was just curious why, why it just seems to go that way, but that was, that's what I took from it. Uh, I thought this was a, a very well done actually fight myself. I liked how they did it. And one of the things I liked was that, you know, Batman's finding his way to the Joker using this unethical cell phone uh, uh, technology. And when he gets there, the Joker has three Rottweilers waiting for him. And I like that. You know, the Joker knows that he probably can't match Batman strength for strength, so he's got a backup plan. The Rottweilers attack. Batman and the Joker goes in and starts going to town on him with this I believe it was a pipe that yeah, he had or whatever he's just beating yeah, the tar pipe, on yeah. Batman yeah it was I thought that was awesome and he's just you know going to town on on Batman trying to beat the crap out of him while these dogs are you know Batman's trying to wrestle the dogs off him uh, so I like that the one thing I thought was weird though is that now that Batman has found Joker why is he still using the cell phone uh, eyes that he's got going. Why didn't he t- turn those off and use his real eyes to see? You think it'd be a little easier? You'd think, but maybe the building's dark and he's using the sonar. They're playing that. I don't know. I mean, that that was just what I thought of it. But I'm I'm with you. That I, I think you're right. I think because it's an unfinished build. It's an unfinished building. There's probably not a lot of light in there. Like if it were a real building, and it's probably easier to see using that sonar. That would make sense to me. Okay. What did y'all make of the ultimate end when he's got the Joker basically tied up, and you know the the Joker's hanging there laughing at him? They have that little final confrontation, and and Batman, you know, and Bruce Wayne and uh, Christian Bale and his his 
best Batman voice. He's in full voice now, you know. He's, he's giving him this whole bit about how the, the citizens of Gotham are more noble than you'll ever be and all that kind of stuff. How did you feel about the ending of that and that basically they just turned the Joker over to the authorities and he's on his way to Arkham? I mean, it's a little anticlimactic. Yeah. I mean, don't you want it? I mean, I hate to compare it to this and almost say it's a better ending, but don't you want something like in the original Batman with the Joker where he falls to his death and he's laying on the concrete and you just hear this like yuck, 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 and it's one of his stupid stupid toys or something. I've I've expected, I, don't, I wasn't expecting something that cartoony, but something like it, like, Batman pushes him off the building I, and he just kind of swings or something like well, he accidentally hangs himself or something. That's a good point. You see, I think they had set that up. The whole idea, are you ready to, uh-huh. to go go there with this guy and then he goes there with him and it, you know, there's traumatic effects because of it. I really thought they were going to have him kill him. Yeah, I just, I, I was expecting something like that, not just hauling him off to the asylum. I was expecting... It's, Especially knowing Heath Ledger was dead when they were doing post-production on this, getting a scene where he killed him wouldn't have been hard to work in. I mean, it really wouldn't have. Right. And that's something else I was thinking was that were they doing this in, because like I've said before, this is an A-list villain hoping to bring him back eventually and not knowing that Heath Ledger was going to die you know, before the movie's made, but, I mean, before the movie's released, so I was thinking, that's what I was thinking they were trying to accomplish with that. But I could be wrong. Brian, what do you think? Well, I actually really liked the way that they did this. I thought it was good because, and mostly because of the dialogue, how the Joker basically says, you know, you're not going to kill me, are you? I, you actually cannot be corrupted. And he goes, I think I'm going to keep you alive because we could have fun together. And I like that whole piece because it shows that, you know, Joker now has a mission. And that is he, he turned Dent from a good guy to a bad guy. Now he wants to turn Batman that way, too. So I liked it. You know, Batman not killing him is good for the Batman character because that's not what Batman's out for. He's not a vigilante. He's not out to kill people. He's out to bring people to justice. And bringing the Joker to justice by having him hang there and turning him over to the authorities I thought was the right move to do. So I liked the ending. I don't know. I thought it was good. I just thought that they, they had said it where he could have gone there. But you're right. And even the Joker has said it, it, but then, you know, in the interrogation scene earlier, Batman's like, why do you want to kill me? And he starts laughing. He's like, I, I don't want to kill you. What would I be without you? You know, and I, I like that he sees him as his equal, you know, and I, just on the different side of things. And, you know, we talked about that before, Anna, that, that Tim Burton saw Batman as big as a freak as the villains he fought. But did it, and Nolan, I think, holds true to that, but he doesn't portray it that way. It's it, it's not so over-the-top and campy. In, in, in this one, it's very real, and I like that element, that the Joker wants to keep Batman around as kind of his buddy and his pet. You know, I mean, it's it's the psychotic way he works, but, you know, we'll never know where, where it'll go from now, I don't think, but it... It's an interesting ending. It is a little anticlimactic. I, I, and I say that from the perspective of the first time I saw it and even the, the second time, I was really expecting him to kill him, even though I knew it wasn't going to happen the 
second time. I, I thought they had set it up where he could, but he didn't. So it, it, it is very true to the character, and they do a good thing. The, of course, during all this, the, the, the bombs don't go off. The, the Joker had set that up just to see if the civilized people would do what they did and uh, all that. It goes on. But we're not done. You know, we still got a whole other plot going on because we got Harvey Dent running around killing people, and he has uh, kidnapped a commissioner who's been main commissioner at this time, Gordon's family, and taking them to this abandoned place in the edge of town for a, a final showdown. And uh, what did y'all make of the final showdown with with Dent and Batman and Gordon and the family there? Now, I actually liked this this scene. I thought this was a good payoff. I thought this was just a just a really good payoff with the kids and the family and the two-face and the coin and the decisions. I just thought they executed this really well and it was a good it was a good payoff. Yeah, I agree. I thought this was a, a very well done as well. I like that they brought the, the the coin flip in and and I like the whole plot with uh you know two-face telling um Commissioner Gordon, you know, you need to lie to your kid. Tell him everything's all right. That's what I had to do. You're going to feel what I felt, and you're going to feel it on my terms. And and with the flip of the coin thing and that being his ultimate downfall, I thought that was a, a very good move. Yeah, it was, it was really smart, and I do agree with you both. This was a much tighter ending. I see now why this was the ending and the Joker ending wasn't. Maybe that one was supposed to be a little more vague and, and open-ended. This one, we were going to bring some closure to this character. And, of course, Batman turns the tables on Dent. Dent falls to his death. And then, uh, you know, we uh, again, this, this script is so tight. Early on... They're gonna. Batman's gonna turn himself in, and what does Dent do? He basically sacrifices himself for the good of what's going on. Well, Batman and and Gordon have this conversation about if if Dent gets exposed as Two Face, then all the good you've done, all the convictions you've got, all the criminals in jail are gonna get set free on technicalities because he's gonna look corrupt, and it's gonna reverse every bit of good you've done. So I'm gonna take this on. And of course, Gordon tells him every cop in the world is gonna be after you. You're gonna be the you know the the target and he said right now that's what i've got to be and he rides off and i love how it's gordon and his son and his son says where's he going you know and he says it he's doing what he what he has to do for the city you know he's going to be our dark knight and i and the cops are after him all that. i mean it's such a great scene and it, it it's so climactic too it's just building and building and building and then boom goes to black and that's the end of it and you almost feel like oh god what what's going to happen next but it's such a satisfying ending because it leaves you just wanting so much more well i i agree and like i said i thought this need this there is a reason why this is the end scene and the joker isn't but you're talking about the script being tight isn't at the very beginning like they're doing a halfway montage not you know like the old 80s montage but they're kind of catching up with what's going on in the police department and stuff since the last movie and someone asked well what about the search for batman and one of the cops goes oh we're working on it and they've got like pictures of bigfoot and elvis and yeah <laughs> really they're not and that kind of goes back to this where he like right now no we know no one's looking for batman that they're just kind of you know it's just kind of this fake looking like they say they are but they're really not because he's helping the police department very well but now they're going to go and search for him so i think that goes back to the really tight script 
Yeah, it pays off everything. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good point, Ann. I'd, I'd forgotten about that little uh, bulletin board. That's a, that's a good funny laugh in that one. I love the ending of this movie. I like that it's it's Gordon telling his son what is going on and why it has to happen, and then showing you know scenes of of them tearing down the bat sign and you know make, you know it, I just love it. I, I love the whole speech that he gives at the end there and ending it with he, to be the hero he's going to become the Dark Knight. I just love that. I think it's well-written and, and a great way to end this movie. It really is, and it's, it's such a cool movie. We need to do some quick comparisons here, y'all, to our, our previous uh, series and franchise. And I, I want to do the... We, we've done this kind of throughout, but I want to get some sort of final words from y'all on what you prefer, what you liked. Ledger's Joker and, in some way, Nolan's Joker versus Nicholson and Burton's Joker. And your, your thoughts on, on those? Um, I did like Heath Ledger's portrayal better. And I think, like you said, it has to do with the screenplay and the direction has a lot to do with it. I also think, I think, because they take the Joker to a darker place. As I said before, he's not as cartoony. Um, It's a little more realistic. He's more psycho. He's more of a psycho and stuff. And I like that a lot better. I think Keith Ledger did a very good good job. Um, I, I don't know if his death, like we discussed before, too, that his death led, he would have been considered for an Oscar, let alone won it because of his death prior to the release of this movie. But he did, I mean, all in all, he did a fabulous job. He did a wonderful job. And this is going to sound morbid. I can understand almost, like, why he died the way he did because this is such a sick and twisted character and he did such a good job of it. I wonder if that led to some of it or there's just a whole bunch of stuff we didn't know from way back when for nicholson's joker i think it worked well for the movie i don't dislike it i like it in kind of a cartoony comic book way and jack nicholson's a great actor as well it's just at the point he did the joker i believe he had proven himself more than heath ledger had at the point he did the joker as an actor Okay. I prefer um, Heath Ledger's Joker to the Nicholson Joker by a long mile because to me the Heath Ledger Joker is a sick, sadistic, psychopathic criminal. And the the Jack Nicholson Joker is more of a cartoony criminal that just is there to fight Batman. This guy looks like he is there to take over and cause utmost chaos the the most chaos he can and that's why i like i think it plays better i like the look of this joker better he looks like a a, he's got a reason why he's so sadistic someone cut his face up really good at some point and um just how it's played in this whole movie i think is is so much better than what we got with the uh jack nicholson version it's it's hard to to for me to say I prefer one or the other because I liked Nicholson's portrayal. But I said in the other podcast, I almost like Nicholson's Jack Napier character more than his Joker character. We didn't get any of that with, with Heath Ledger here. All we got was Joker. And I liked the the ferocious way that he portrayed that character. And, and uh, you know, it, it's... Again, I, I go back to the comparison of how they call him. He's full on in this one. There's no middle ground. He is 100% shark in this, and he is 
total evil, and he's it's just so good. When I look at Heath, and probably why I, I prefer it just a little bit more is when I look at Heath Ledger's Joker, I don't see Heath Ledger. I don't, I don't see a Knight's Tale. I don't see ten things I hate about you. <laughs> yeah, I don't see Heath Ledger at all. I don't hear the accent. Nothing. I see the Joker. I don't see Heath Ledger, and I think that's something that's really hard to do as an actor. Um, with Jack Nicholson's Joker, I see Jack Nicholson. That's a good point. And I'm not saying it's worse or better, but I think that I think Heath Ledger put a little more into it than Jack Nicholson. But it could have very well been the script. What about just looking at these two films as in comparison to the Burton films and the Schumacher films? Not for their quality, because our recommendations are coming up, and we'll, we'll do that in a minute. But just for what they tried to accomplish, I mean, the Burton films are comic book films, and they're like amusement park rides. Uh, the Schumacher films are cartoons and campy cartoons. These two are very realistic and gritty. I mean, what what do y'all think about those? Do, are, are these two as effective in accomplishing their goal? Are they better than than some of the execution before I me. Mean, what do y'all think on that? I do feel like they've they've set out and accomplished their individual goals, but um, I don't know if the Schumacher's ones accomplished their goals. He started out kind of strong, as we've said with Batman Forever, and then just everything went to hell with Batman. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and um, but I think if you take Burton and Nolan's take on it, they both set out and accomplished goals that they set out to accomplish. Um, there's just two different versions of it. There's, like I said, there's the real dark comic book borderline on campy version of Tim Burton's. And then there's the kind of gritty but realistic version of Christopher Nolan. And I, and then there's just the absolute, I mean, to call it cartoony would be an insult to anything that's cartoony, is whatever Joel Schumacher's were it's just they're just two separate films with two separate goals and i don't really know if there's really any good comparison i think that the uh nolan films are far and above better presentation i think more enjoyable from a batman story standpoint but i agree they both accomplished what they needed. I I have to admit that the two Schumacher films are not the greatest films oh, in the world. I, that was hard to and, admit, I'm sure. You know, so. Bat, <laughs> yeah, Batman Forever was the better of the two, but even that one's not great. Uh, and I just watched about th- three quarters of the Batman and Robin the other day, and, and that's just utter garbage. <laughs> But I also watched, I picked up the the four-pack DVD that had the two Burtons and the two Schumacher films in one uh, set. And I've watched all of them now. And I have to say that Burton's films are actually much better uh, and more comparable to these Nolan versions because they're they're made more seriously, I think, than the, uh, the other two, so... That's a good point, and it's a, it's a good way to kind of wrap up a bow in our Batman series. Guys, we got one last thing to do. It's time for recommendations. Anna, what's your play recommendation for The Dark Knight? Okay, follow me here. All right. I'm going to give it a once play, <gasps> but not because... Follow me here. Not because it's a bad movie. It's a great movie. The acting, which is why I'm giving it a once play. The screen, the screenplay is good. The acting is good. Even if you have know nothing about Batman, even if you didn't see Batman Begins, you've got to see this one. The script is tight. 
the acting is good the action the action is wonderful you know for nothing else you know Heath Ledger gave a one once in a lifetime performance you need to see this movie why I say a once play and this is coming from my perspective where actually today I watched The Waterboy because I love that movie I like stupid movies this is a very dark very very I don't know if sadistic is the right word, but it's just a very dark, very psychological. It almost borders on a psychological thriller more than an action movie. And it's just something that, that me personally, I can, I cannot watch more than once. And the more I watch it, I notice it gets darker and darker and it's just too much for me to think about and stuff. So that's just my personal thing. But I do think that it, I mean, even if you're like me and you only like stupid movies, you know, nothing about Batman, all of the above, you need to at least see this once because it is well worth it. I just, it's just too much for me to think of. It's just too dark. And, and I mean, I just have to see it once. That's just what my recommendation is. All right, Brian. This to me is a continuous play. I love this movie. It is dark. It is sadistic and psycho thriller. It's great. And I like that. Um, I just... I could sit down and watch this movie over and over again. I, the story is tight. It's great. You get into it. You get involved with the whole thing. And, you know, I've watched it about four or five times now. And I I plan to watch it more and more and more. I just... I really enjoy this movie... Both this one and Batman Begins, I, I think they're both uh, continuous plays. And I, for me, it, I recommend watching it all the time. Well, I can't argue with what Anna said, and she's right. If you're not into this type of thing, this is an assault on your senses or whatever. I want to tell you all this. When, when I said you know, at the beginning of this podcast, this is one of the few films I've seen more than once in a theater. Though, unlike you guys, uh, unlike you, Anna, I didn't go back to see it again because I just had such a good time at it. I walked out of the theater the first time at the end of this one, and I didn't know what I thought of it. I I didn't like it. I, I'll tell you, I I had a, a real sense like I don't think I liked that. I don't I don't think I liked where that went. I don't I, I don't know how to feel about it. And I talked to a friend of mine who she and I talk a lot of movies and stuff, and she said you need to go see this again. You're missing the point. And she said, you got to look at this the way The Empire Strikes Back works in the Star Wars trilogies. And I said, okay, you know, the downbeat, dark middle chapter. And she said, yeah, you just got to look at it like that. So I went back in with that perspective, and I came out with a different appreciation for it. Now, it is a very dark and a hard-hitting film, but it's an excellent film. If you don't even like Batman or comic book movies or action movies, it is a great film. And I don't think this borders on a psychological thriller. I think it is a psychological thriller. I think that's what Christopher Nolan does. You watch his movies, they're, they're, there's action in them, but they're psychological thrillers. And I think that's why this one's so good. So i got to give this one a continuous play as well. But with a disclaimer that if you're not into this kind of thing, it, this is a tough one to get through. I mean, it's a lot, and it's hard on you. But I think it makes you think, and it brings up such cool social elements. And we've tried to talk about some of those tonight. I think it can spawn some good discussion. You know, good entertainment should be something that you walk away from and you're you're talking about it after you leave it 
with the people you've seen it with, like we're doing here, you know. So hopefully this one will do that for you. I got to give this one a continuous play. This is an excellent film. It's the best film in the Batman franchise series that we've done. And I want to ask both of you that very quickly, Brian. I know you didn't review the other ones with us, but uh, of the six films that we've we put in this retrospective, your favorite one, mine is The Dark Knight. Anna. Oh God, it's tough because I. I like that. I like this one a lot. I like Batman Begins a lot because it's the origin of the story. I I really I really like that because you learn. I I guess I would have to say Batman Begins. I actually like a little bit better because it's not quite as dark as this. But you learn where Batman came from. You learn how he starts to get the cool toys and you know. And I really like that as, aspect of it. I do like. And I think it's just, it's nostalgic. I do like the original one from Tim Burton. I don't know why. I think it's just nostalgic. I I just like that one too. But I would probably have to go with Batman Begins. My favorite is also Batman Begins. I, I For the same reasons. I like the backstory of it. I like the, the whole uh, corruption of Gotham end of it and everything else that there is. I think this is by far the second best in the series, The Dark Knight. But... Uh, for me, Batman Begins is my favorite. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me and being a part of this series. It's our longest series we've done for Continuous Place, a six-parter, and uh, we'll hope to keep bringing these uh, in the future. So thanks to both of you for, for watching. We these. will be back for the new Batman. Yes, when when it comes out, and I, right now slated in 2012, we the three of us will reconvene, and we will put a coda on this series because as no one says his is a trilogy he's doing one more and then that's it so we'll we'll have to see uh, how it comes out with warners a lot of rumors out there right now but as with most christopher nolan films there's not a lot you can really hang your hat on yet they are writing the script though and and it's the same team it's him his brother and david goyer again so you you can you can expect more of the same i'm I'm curious as to where they're going to go with it. But we will be back to do this one again. Uh, folks, we thank you for joining us for each part of our, our Batman series here and for this episode. Visit our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com. Leave us a message in our guest book. And also check out some of our other series. We've got a romantic comedy retrospective there. We've got some cartoons and people in there. We've got Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, all kinds of stuff. Check out our other series. Give us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. For Anna and Brian, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Continuous play. Thank you for listening to Continuous Play's Batman Franchise Retrospective. Continuous Play and ContinuousPlayPodcast.com is not affiliated with any movie, television, book, music, or publishing-related company. Any discussion of the plots, characters, or music from the films is done so for entertainment purposes only, and all rights are reserved. Please visit our website at www.ContinuousPlayPodcast.com for other series, and feel free to leave us a comment. 